Hi folks, welcome to the Arabian Horse Connection, the official podcast of the Arabian Horse Association. Tune in every other week as we discuss industry trends, news, and all things Arabian horses. We are here to honor the versatility, heritage, and future of the Arabian horse, connecting you to this legendary breed. I'm your host, Katie Feitner. Join me as we delve into the world of Arabian horses. Today I sit down and chat with Larry Shellcross, Chair of the Probable Cause Panel, and Van Jacobson, Chair of the Ethical Practices Interview Board. We discuss what each panel does from receiving a complaint all the way to the decision-making process. Learn more about what the EPRB does and how it helps enforce the rules of the Arabian Horse Association by listening to this episode. Um, Larry, we can start off um, with your introduction. So thanks for being on our podcast today. Can you um, introduce yourself to our listeners and tell our listeners what you do within AHA and your Arabian horse experience? Sure. I, uh, well, my name is Larry Shalcross. I've been a member of AHA for something north of 30 years. Uh, I've been in the horse world uh, something north of 50 years, but um, who's counting? I I was the first attorney on the Judges and uh, Stewart's Commissioner Review Panel. I've sat on a number of committees over the years, bylaws. um, I've run horse shows and showed horses, of course, as I said, for about a little over 50 years. So um, I have a great, I mean, I don't know that much because nobody ever knows that much, but I've had a wonderful time in life horsing around. Uh, My name is Van Jacobson. I'm a member of Region 10. I'm a past uh, six-year director for the Arabian Horse Association. Um, I am an attorney by trade. I am licensed to practice law since 1982 in the state of Minnesota, uh, the district court for Minnesota, and also the Minnesota's or the United States Supreme Court. Um, I am a partner in our law firm, Bird Jacobson and Stevens, uh, that has been around for 37 years. Um, my equine involvement, I've owned Arabian horses since 1970, and um, I have shown in most all disciplines over the years, winning national championships as well as in endurance. Uh, what I do a lot in the equine industry now is I'm a, a judge, an uh, AHA national and regional level judge, and do a lot of judging um, of shows throughout the United States and across the uh, world, actually, uh, something that I enjoy a lot. But I have been involved as a delegate, like I said, a director uh, with AHA for many, many years. One of the things or one of my longest standing uh, participation events is the Ethical Practices Review Board. Um, I have been on this board for probably 28 years. I've been chair for 21 So you've actually been involved with the Arabian breed for quite some time, which is really cool. All the involvement and all the things that you've been able to experience with through the Arabian horse. Could you tell us a little bit more about your role on the EPRB, uh, what the EPRB does and kind of what it means? Uh, The Ethical Practices Review Board uh, is a board that was established by 
resolution in 1970 when the Code of Ethics was adopted. And uh, the Ethical Practices Review Board consists of nine members, one of which must be a an attorney and one of which must be an Arabian horse judge. Uh, we always like to have a veterinarian. We don't, it's not required in our rules, but it's nice with the type of cases we have to have that type of input as well. Uh, the members of the Ethical Practices Review Board are elected annually by the convention delegates on a three-year rotating term basis. There is not a term limit for this board and that is, I believe, to uh, try to have continuity in how the Ethical Practices Review Board deals with various complaints that are brought before it. So kind of piggybacking off what you said about when the Ethical Practices and Review Board was founded in 1970, could you share a little bit of history about the EPRB and some of the cases that you have seen and that you, I guess, more or less, what type of cases that you often see within EPRB? Um, could sure. you speak on that a little bit? Well, um, the Ethical Practices Review Board has heard a variety of cases in the 28 years or so that I've been on the board. Um, and all of the rules as it relates to the Ethical Practices Review Board and the Probable Cause Panel are contained in Chapter 3 of the AHA handbook. And obviously, if you have a concern about ethics or filing a complaint, you would want to consult chapter three. Um, and that gives you guidelines and answers, which should answer most of your questions. But contained in the rules, there are two, um, there are what are called ethical considerations. And some people get a little confused and think that we can enforce ethical considerations, but we really can't. Ethical considerations are aspirational in character. It's what we all strive to be, to be a good, kind person, etc. But that's hard to quantify. So we can use the ethical considerations when we hear a case, but what actually has to be established is a violation of a rule. And so our rules contain um, 22 rules of conduct contained in chapter three. And those are rules that when somebody files a complaint need to be specified in order to bring the case forward. Most commonly, the types of cases we have seen over the years would include neglect or mistreatment of horses. Um, unfortunately, that does exist. And we have people that simply are for whatever reason, unable to provide necessary food or care for their horses, whether it's a lack of funds, whether it's a lack of compassion, we don't know, but it's not uncommon to see a abuse or maltreatment of a horse claim. Another type of claim we see, unfortunately, a little more often than we would like is misappropriation of funds. A club treasurer uh, starts borrowing money from the club treasury without telling anybody and ends up misappropriating funds. We've seen a number of those cases. Uh, we see some cases as it pertains to um, judges. Judges have uh, are held to the highest standard of judges and stewards are held to the highest standards of integrity at all times. Um, they have some specific rules about contact, contact they can have with people 
before a show or when being hired with a sh to judge a show, et cetera. And similarly, we've seen cases where people have hired judges and then shown under them, which is in violation of our rules. There are some rules that we don't see a lot of violations, improper use of the AHA logo, that is one of our rules. Um, it, our rules incorporate all of the rules of USEF and AERC and the registry, and so we can interpret and in, review rule violations that may have occurred at a horse show. However, for horse show violations, USEF, as an example, has its own rule violation process if something happened at a show. So really, a person should pursue that first. But if they've missed the USEF rule timelines, which are much stricter, they can bring a claim to uh, the Ethical Practices Review Board. So those are the types of cases. Uh, over the years, there's, there have just been so many people's emotions will get involved, of course. But what we don't hear are contractual matters. We don't hear a case where somebody buys a horse and did not made misrepresentations about the horse, even though that might violate an ethical consideration. It's not a rule violation. Or somebody buys a horse and doesn't make the payments on the horse. We will have inquiries about those kind of cases, but they're not the kind of cases we actually hear. Could you describe, say somebody thinks that they have adequate evidence to file uh, a case for the EPRB. Could you share how someone should make a filing and some of the things that should and should not be reported to the EPRB? Because I feel like sometimes, you know, we will receive calls about there's a case of neglect or something like that. Um, and it can be somewhat murky as to um, what people think should be filed and should not. Sure. Um, well, number one, if you're considering filing an ethical practices review board complaint, the first place you would go again is to chapter three to look at the rules. Um, and AHA has a staff liaison, Leslie Lockhart right now, who is generally your contact person and she will make sure you have the appropriate form and will answer any questions for you. She can't give you legal advice, of course, but she can direct you what you need to include in your complaint. The Ethical Practice Review Board complaint will ask the name of the person that the complaint is being brought against. They must be an AHA member at the time the complaint, the action happens. So if somebody is not an AHA member, we do not have jurisdiction over them. However, failure to renew your membership does not eliminate the charge if it happened while you were a member. So the complaint form will ask the name of the complainant, the name of the respondent, who's being charged, in what capacity, and then it will ask them to describe the nature of the rule violation, and they will be asked to cite the specific rule. For example, um, ethics rule 104.6 is mistreatment or neglect of an Arabian or half Arabian horse, uh, fit, failure to provide food and water, et cetera. So somebody might uh, have that information and feel that someone has neglected or failed to provide adequate food and water for a horse or failure to have give the horses the general care they need. 
And, and they would then need to list in their complaint form witnesses to it. Generally, in a neglect case, there's probably going to be some photos. It might be uh, an animal welfare agency involved, et cetera. That's the kind of evidence they would want to be submitting with their complaint. Now, in that example, we do have some rules, just so people are aware. If that complaint, for example, the neglect complaint, is the subject of a complaint in another jurisdiction, for example, if criminal charges have been filed, we will accept the complaint, but may we will not hear the case until the final decision is made in the criminal court or through USCF or something. We stay our proceedings. But so once somebody files that ethical practices review board complaint, then what happens is it is sent to the probable cause panel. And the probable cause panel is a three-person board, again, elected by the delegates at the annual convention. And the probable cause panel also must have an attorney on their board. And they review the complaint, not to determine whether they believe a violation has occurred, but to make sure that it's a complaint that the ethics board would hear, that it, that it sets forth a cause of action or a rule violation. So again, if, if somebody filed an ethical practices review board complaint that somebody has not paid me for my horse I sold them, the probable cause panel would presumably reject that and it would never come to the ethical practices review board. So once the probable cause panel has vetted this case, reviewed it, uh, and that's Larry's jurisdiction, um, then it gets forwarded to the ethical practices review board. And at that point, the respondent, the person being charged, has no idea that this is even out there many times. But at that point, if it's forwarded to the Ethical Practice Review Board, a letter is sent to the person being charged with a copy of the complaint and asking them to file an answer within 45 days. They're supposed to file a written answer. We have no subpoena powers. We can't require them to, but we do have... Uh, disciplinary powers, so it's certainly in their best interest to comply. And after um, a case is forwarded to them and they've answered, uh, then we have to give them 30 days written notice of a hearing. After they have written notice of a hearing, then generally 10 days prior to the hearing, they have to notify us what witnesses may attend, whether they'll be attending in person, uh, provide copies of any documents they intend to offer so we can provide them to both sides. Uh, prior to a hearing. And then eventually the Ethical Practices Review Board will hold a hearing. Most commonly our hearings are held in Denver. Um, they're very confidential. Everything that's sent to the probable cause panel and the Ethical Practices Review Board is maintained as confidential information. We cannot talk about it. That doesn't prevent the parties involved from talking about it. And there are times when people will talk about what's happened at an ethics hearing, but it's not coming from the members of the board. We take the confidentiality very seriously. So I do have kind of a follow-up to what you described um, in that explanation a little bit earlier. So what are the actions that you can take if you find someone has, um, has violated a rule or a code of conduct? What are some of the things that the EPRB can do as a disciplinary action? Well, there are a variety of things, and they're really not 
limited. We have our discretion to do whatever we deem appropriate under the circumstances. We are supposed to um, protect our horses, the horses, but we're also supposed to you know, treat the cases fairly and hopefully consistently. Uh, again, chapter three sets forth um, specific censures or specific uh, um, actions that could be taken, but we're not limited to those. The ones that are contained in the rule are a private censure, a public censure, a denial of AHA membership privileges, a prohibition of attendance at AHA events. Uh, in more serious cases, we can expel someone from membership permanently or suspend someone from membership for a period of time. We may require forfeiture of awards. Um, if we've had situations, again, I'll use that amateur rule, we could require that the awards be refunded. And we also uh, can impose fines and fines can be imposed and need to be paid before they are eligible for reinstatement of their membership. Now we're not limited to those, but that's an example we can choose from. Of course, you have to find a violation of a rule in order to do anything. Uh, there's been some times that we've had a rule violation made and you kind of wanted to say to the person that's charged, you need to clean up your act a little bit, but if we found that they didn't violate a rule, we can't say that. If there's no rule violation, then we have no right to offer our advice. If we find a rule violation, we can issue a, a private censure. I will use an example without naming the circumstances of the case. We had an abuse case many years ago where one of the horses was very thin and most people would look at it and think something's wrong. Testimony came out that this was a very old horse and it really was on its last leg and um, other horses on the property were in decent shape. A, in that case, we felt that a private censure was appropriate and just kind of said, well, you should have made sure that there was appropriate vet care or something, but we could use a private censure because it wasn't, we didn't feel that it had warranted anything more. Well, we've had other abuse cases where we've seen multiple horses have to be euthanized, et cetera. And in some of those cases, we've ended up with a permanent expulsion from membership. Um, so could you explain a little bit about what the hearing process is and what occurs, um, the type of sure. things that happen? So once an ethical practices review board complaint has been forwarded to the EPRB and notices have been sent out and a hearing is scheduled, as I indicated, most hearings are held in Denver. There are nine people on the ethical practices review board. Uh, Generally, we will not schedule a hearing unless we can have at least six people at the hearing, six ethical practice review board members available. So what happens once you uh, are at a hearing, you'll come to the hearing site, which might be the conference room at the AHA offices or a conference room at a hotel that the EPRB members may be staying at. And both parties, the complainant and the respondent, have the opportunity to appear. It's strongly encouraged that they appear. If they do not appear, um, they can submit a written notarized presentation. Uh, at the beginning of the hearing, uh, all of the exhibits have to be submitted to us. They're put in an exhibit folder that 
exhibit numbers are bait stamped so we can refer to page 183 or something like that as we discuss the case or have questions for the uh, witnesses. Um, and, it, and then at the beginning of the hearing, the chair will introduce the members of the ethical practices review board that are present. At that point, they will ask each of them individually if they have any conflict of interest which would prevent them from fairly and accurately um, hearing the facts of the case. And then when we're done with the board, we will then individually ask both the complainant and the respondent the same question. Do they feel that any of members of the ethical practice review board would not be available to hear the case? There are times that we will have a member that may have firsthand knowledge of a situation, but they will recuse themselves and generally not be there. But after we've identified that, basically uh, the ethical practices review board members will be sitting up front, so to speak, facing the uh, respondent and the complainant. And at that point, um, the parties are given an opportunity, uh, the complainant proceeds first and they have to present their case. They're given an opportunity to give an opening statement and then call their witnesses. The respondent has an opportunity to give his or her opening statement after the complainant or they can wait until the complainant has presented all their evidence. But they will be given an opportunity to cross-examine or question any witnesses that are called. When the complainant is done, then it switches to the respondent's case and he or she has the opportunity to present their defense and any evidence they would like to present and again they are given the opportunity to um, cross-examine or examine the witnesses what's a little bit unusual is is once all of that is done then the ethical practice review board members have an opportunity to ask questions as well so some people kind of see us almost like a jury, but a jury doesn't have an opportunity to ask questions, but we do. So we can ask questions, but it's, we, we don't do a lot of that. We do some of that because really it's the responsibility of the claimant and the respondent to present their case in defenses. The complainant does have the burden of proof by a preponderance of the evidence. It's not a criminal standard. It's not by, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, it's a preponderance of the evidence, a tipping of the scales, which what is most likely. And um, then the participants will be asked if they have anything else they want to say, et cetera, and then the, then the hearing will adjourn and they will leave. And at that point, the Ethical Practices Review Board members will convene and deliberate. And that process, we kind of spread out and we just talk about it and we talk about the facts and people speak freely and sometimes we take a vote and certainly there's differences of opinion and the first determination for us is to, to determine whether a, a rule infraction has been violated if so which one or how many we do that before we get to any consideration as to what the appropriate sanction might be once we are in agreement on that um, and that can take a while sometimes. Uh, we had one case that uh, was a long case, but we deliberated three days, which is unusual. Most cases, the deliberations occur the same day, but can take several hours. And once the board has reached a consensus, we then actually write our findings and sanction 
well, everyone is there. So we kind of all agree on the language. And at that point, um, when we're done with that, sometimes we'll have a second case that day, but maybe not. But then those findings would be then given to uh, the executive vice president and they would then forward those to the parties. Now, if there is no rule violation, they would get findings saying that no rule violation was found. If there was a sanction, they would get that. And if there's a sanction, it has to be uh, posted on the AHA website under sanctions and uh, censures, et cetera. So you guys really take a very um, solid amount of time to really deliberate and make sure what you're going to decide is fair, accurate, and all that good stuff and really aligns with what the rules of conduct are. We do. And it's really hard. It's really hard because we, the Arabian horse community, are a small community. And we know many of these people and we don't want to expel somebody from membership permanently. Nobody wants to do that, but we are bound by what the evidence shows us. And um, most commonly, the expulsions are gonna be in significant misappropriation of funds or significant abuse cases. And then you're doing it for the protection of the horses and other members in our community. But it's not fun. I mean, uh, over the years, you see people that I certainly consider friends that appear before us, but you have to put that aside. You know, I put on my lawyer hat. I'm a rural person. That's what I do for a living. It, uh, so, you know, it's like, these are the rules. We look for facts to support our determination. If you have an abuse case, you'll look for veterinary findings with scores for the horses for their physical condition, things like that. And in our findings, we'll cite to the exhibit number and page. You may say exhibit, you know, page 118 showing a report on a dead horse or something like that. You know, so you're, you are, we don't just randomly say this is what we decided and not provide some element of explanation. But yet we don't go into that detail with the public information because it's still confidential. So the findings that a member would be reading would be that um, somebody mistreated and neglected Arabian horses under their care, custody and control. And they are suspended for this period of time or expelled for this period of time. And, and even there, you know, mistreatment, some people will say any mistreatment or neglect, you should expel people from membership permanently. Well, that's where different circumstances come in. You know, sometimes somebody has a circumstance that came up, uh, somebody's working on it, somebody's trying to rehabilitate themselves. And that may come into our decision-making process, but um, we do take it very seriously, yes. Would you be able to explain the differences between um, the legalities that go into these neglect cases, for example, and how the EPRB is different from a governing body of law, for example, like um, how someone could be prosecuted in a court of law versus with AHA? Sure. I mean, uh, mistreatment, neglect of horses, pretty much every state statute would have that as a criminal crime. And so people that are guilty of or that are charged with mistreatment or neglect of Arabian horses could be charged criminally. AHA does not file criminal charges. Um, that is an example where 
we, under our rules, are bound to accept the findings of a criminal court. So if a criminal court determines that owner A has abused and neglected these horses and have been criminally found guilty or pled guilty, we, as the Ethical Practices Review Board, have to accept those findings. We can still issue a different sanction based upon circumstances, and that's where we have a wide range of sanctions available. But the only thing that we really are able to deal with is that individual's membership and ability to participate in AHA, which can, which can include their ability to register horses. We cannot prohibit them from owning horses. A criminal court of law could, but we can't say to somebody, you can't own horses because if they're not a member and not attending AHA functions, and not registering horses, we do not have control over that. The only thing we can control is membership privileges, which allows us to keep that individual from showing, from registering. It can't doesn't necessarily keep them from breeding, um, but those horses are not going to be able to be registered in their name. I think that's um, a very important distinction between what happens at AHA and what happens separately in a court of law. So thank you for going into further depth with that. Um, I would like, if you don't mind, just to address one aspect of this. Um, the probable cause panel is much like a grand jury in that we have to determine whether or not the charges that are brought by a member uh, are appropriate to go to the Ethical uh, Practices Review Board. Uh, there is an appellate process that can go to the courts from an administrative law decision. What we are is an administrative private body um, with a set of rules and regulations uh, to determine whether or not our rules and regulations have been violated. And so if you're aggrieved uh, and you believe that it should be appealed, uh, the ultimate appeal would be to a district court in Denver, Colorado, because that is, in fact, the corporate headquarters of the Arabian Horse Association. So would you be able to provide a few examples of what would be an adequate complaint and what you would something, an example of what you would be forwarding on to the EPRB? Um, well, let, let's just take an abuse scenario, alleged abuse scenario, okay? So this is purely hypothetical, but um, um, someone at a horse show observes a rider entering the ring and the rider is either spurring or with a crop or bat um, continuously striking or spurring this horse for at least to the observer for no apparent reason and the observer sees that there is blood running off the side of the horse either from a bat or a whip or spur marks and so the observer goes to the steward and says to the steward this is what i saw and it was mr x 
And so the steward goes with the complainant and wants to examine the horse, does, and does in fact prepare a, a report that is based upon his observations that well could form a basis of a complaint for uh, horse abuse. So it sounds like, um, you know, in order to have a um, case that's going to be able to be heard from the probable cause and then forwarded on to the EPRB, there needs to be some significant evidence um, from the claimant. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. So to kind of wrap up here, um, I just do have a th- one more question for you guys. So I think this comes up a lot as well, and we did kind of cover cover it earlier, but just to ask it directly. So if a person is found guilty of a charge cited under the rules of conduct and has a permanent suspension with AHA, can they still have horses under their care? is number one. And number two, I also wanted to just quickly run through the different types of suspensions that are, um, that can be given out after a ruling has been completed. Well, I think that that comes under, you know, the EPRB is the one that issues the suspensions. And um, number one, we cannot keep somebody from owning a horse, no matter what our suspensions are. That is not something AHA has the ability to do. The best way we can discourage that is say they cannot become a member of AHA, which can then prohibit them from registering horses. Like I said earlier, they could still breed horses, but they're going to be unregistered horses. They may go to another breed, etc., but we cannot control whether they own horses. A criminal court could. And as far as the type of suspensions, that really kind of varies. We can issue a, uh, you have to look at the circumstances. If it was a breeding issue, you could issue a suspension of their registration privileges for a period of time. But most commonly, a suspension is from all activities in the association. You cannot be a member, you cannot participate, you cannot go on the grounds, um, you have to basically stay away for a period of one year, two years, etc. And sometimes we'll put a suspension that says once you've complied with these provisions, you can then apply for reinstatement of membership. For example, uh, a misappropriation of funds where there was a lot of money involved. Once you have satisfied your indebtedness, in that case that the USEF had determined in their proceeding, we had again had to accept those findings, but we could modify the sanction that you could, until you provide proof that you've satisfied those indebtedness, you cannot, are not eligible for even reconsideration of your AHA membership. So the suspensions can vary, and that's where we try to have the continuity of our membership, and we do look at what we've done with other individuals, but you can have a suspension for one year, two years. Um, You may suspend somebody for a certain period of time, for example, if their violation was at the nationals, it doesn't, you suspend them for three months after that, by the time you've heard it, that may have not have any effect. On the other hand, if you give them a suspension over the term that the nationals run, then you're kind of 
trying to take care of that. So there's no set concrete definition of what the suspension is. It really is in the uh, purview of the Ethical Practices Review Board hearing the case, and they consider all of the factors, the circumstances of the case, uh, and try to be um, constructive with their sanction, but yet protect the horse and our membership. Um, so before we wrap up, I wanted to give both of you a chance to um, provide any last thoughts, address a topic um, that maybe we did not get to cover specifically within the length of this podcast. Well, the only thing I would like to say is, is that, um, it, you know, this has obviously been a very challenging year for everyone. Um, and I know that there are many of the the horse owners that like to show um, are frustrated. I'm, my my wife Margo was, I think, of the six shows she was hired to do this year. Only two of them went, and so we all hope that we'll have an opportunity to get back uh, to our normal routine. I also think, though, that we have learned uh, a great lesson in adaptability, and uh, and hopefully we we also have learned a bit of patience, and uh, maybe to be kinder to each other uh, as we go through the process. And and I think that's that's the message that I know um, with regard to our rules. I think if we if we emphasize to our members the importance of being kind, not only to our horses, but also uh, to our fellow members, um, then, the, then the rules kind of take care of themselves. Well, I would just like to say that I think AHA is doing a great job under the current situation, the fact that we're having this podcast to try to keep our membership informed, the fact that we're having a virtual convention, all of these things are, are deserve a round of applause. I would encourage anybody with questions about the Ethical Practices Review Board or the Probable Cause Panel, the next time we have an in-person convention, we always have a meeting that is open to the general membership uh, and we always are open to questions at those meetings. And we always have some people that are interested. But the goal is to not have to utilize the Ethical Practices Review Board or appear before the Ethical Practices Review Board. As Larry said, this is a small industry. Let's all treat each other with kindness and respect the horses that we all love. And remember, you know, act like your mother wanted you to. You know, be nice to everyone and don't get yourself in trouble. And and life will be good. Stay safe, everyone. Uh, both of you guys provided some very nice closing words. So thank you very much. And thank you very much for being on our podcast today. I really appreciated it. And it was very interesting getting to talk with both of you to learn more about the probable cause panel and what the EPRB does and those specific processes. So thank you, guys. Oh, Katie, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you guys. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Thanks. now. Bye-bye. Thank you for
for listening to this episode of the Arabian Horse Connection, the official podcast of the Arabian Horse Association, where we showcase the diversity of the Arabian horse community from industry titans, backyard heroes, and amateur contenders. Do you think you might have content for the Arabian Horse Connection podcast? We would love to hear from you. Please send your suggestions to marketing at arabianhorses.org. We'll see you next time, folks.